<laughs> is that incense, Father Anthony? Yes, it is. Is this a vape? This is a vape. I am I am tapering off uh, my nicotine habits via again? vape. Yes, again. I didn't want to talk about this because people are like, oh, nicotine Listen. makes you die. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's called an addiction. <laughs> okay. Hey, that's I not sm- what I want to talk about. I smoke cigars. I smoke pipes. I like See, tobacco. See, that's fine, though. The occasional cigar or pipe is different than having a uh, dip in your face like 24-7. Oh, geez. Yeah. 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 So a little different. So I seem a little edgy. It's because my levels are off. Um, <laughs> but I don't – you know what? We've got, we've got Larry Chap here. We've got Father Harrison. I don't want to do the normal podcast thing where it's like, oh, how about your life? I want to talk about a question that I've been thinking about constantly ever since we got it via email. And the question is this. If a priest is a vampire, are the sacraments still valid, celebrated by that priest? Now, I love this question because we need fake theology and real theology to figure this out. Because first of all, should we like introduce who we have here? Yeah, Larry Chap. They're going to learn about him uh, by how he answers this question. I'm more interested in the vampire than people knowing who I am. So please go on. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Okay, so. First of all, we're going with like kind of classic vampire theology. Original vampire, Dracula, becomes a vampire by making a deal with the devil, obviously. Okay. So the question I have for, for that particular instance, selling your soul to the devil, um, this is an act of the will. I feel like it's something similar to full-on like possession going on here. Um, if, the, if Dracula was a priest... And he has sold his soul to the devil, the soul which has the ontological change. Does he still have, like, the faculties of his soul if they've been given over to the devil? Well, you want me to answer that? I would yeah. say it's impossible for a human being to give their soul completely over to the devil, I mm. would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that you could open your soul up to demonic possession, uh, but I would say that, I mean, that's a kind of meme, you know, I sold my soul to the devil, now the devil owns me. He might own you in a sense of being possessed, but you haven't lost your ontological character as, you know, a human being made in the image and likeness of God. But here's the problem. A vampire is not human. That's That was going to be my next point, which okay, yeah. ex opere operato only kicks in if we're talking about a human being. And a vampire has... It, correct my improper understanding of the mythologies involved here, but they're not human anymore, right? Well, that's the question. So are they... They, are they, are they alive? Or are they dead? So if they're they the, are... Yeah. yeah. They're the undead. That's a The undead, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, if they are just no longer human beings, they're just these shadowy creatures that have the, a human visage, then obviously can't be a priest anymore. Can't no, do it anymore. No, no, no. I would say priesthood ends when you die. So. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's, uh, well, 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 priesthood well, ends, doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't end. end when you die. Well, oh yeah, you know, oh geez, that's true. That's very true. It can your your ontological stamp stays on for all eternity. Absolutely. So, let's say you're a good priest. You're walking around the streets of London or whatever, or Transylvania. Let's do that, and you get bitten by a vampire, uh, and you die. Now, there's a person that looks like you who is now a vampire, and you're up there in heaven saying, "Wow, this is really awkward for everyone in my parish." Um, so that person. <laughs> 
who is a vampire, is no longer you. You're just up there interse- interceding for the poor souls in your parish who are going to get invalid sacraments. I think that's the answer to that. Probably. It'd be like that 1950s sci-fi movie, The Pod People, where... Yes. <laughs> you know, it looks like you, but it's really an alien. Now, I'll so. say one more thing. Can a pod person be a priest? I don't yes, know. Yes, exactly. That's that's the adjacent a, question. But I would say this. If, if vampires were somehow real... I feel like your baptismal um, dignity would prevent you from turning into a vampire. I think you would just get a bloody neck. I think if you're a good Christian who's receiving the sacraments, you get bit by a vampire, maybe you lose a lot of blood. You might die from that, but I don't think you get turned. I can agree with that. Let's sign on with that, that your baptism keeps you from becoming a vampire in the first place. Yes, absolutely. Another reason to become Catholic. Yeah. Oh, yes. Among well, that might be. Is that the only reason? I would hope there's more. But yeah, there's that, more. But that's like top three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Harrison, you, now, want, you, you, want... you really got that in an email. That's fantastic. We actually yes. did get this in an email. Yes. Now, okay. Interesting. Final well, thing before I hand it over to Harrison so we can have a real podcast. The email, uh, like when they were asking us this question, said, please respond. It is an emergency. <laughs> Now, that's very worrisome for several reasons. One, I haven't responded until like weeks later in this, you know, podcast. But like, what's the emergency? <laughs> yeah. Terrifying. That terrifying. is terrifying. Oh, that's that that's hysterical. Well, welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harrison. I'm Father Anthony. And we have Larry Chap. Yep, there you go. Welcome I'm here. back. Welcome back. Uh, thank now you. Now it's, it's the trio this time. It's not just... Yeah, all three of us this time. You know, we, we had to dumb down the podcast and bring Father Anthony on this time. I don't... Yeah. I think it's obvious from the beginning topic that we've really come to a new level. Now, yeah. whether or not that level is up or down, hard to tell, but a, definitely a different level. No, no, no. You know, we have I li- to- I, well, I like the opening topic because I, I like things to be a bit cheeky and uh, and fun, so that, that's great. <laughs> As anybody who reads my blog knows, I, I can be a real snot. So it's it's uh, <laughs> it's I like to have fun with yeah. this stuff too. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I'm, still, not, I'm still yeah, I'm still not sure if like apparently vampires still have souls, but it's like, but a vampire their nature changes, and so I'm still I'm still and also what is the nature of a soul is another question. Obviously, right. also like, Bram Stoker was not a good theologian like he had uh, he was irish he had some idea of catholicism because interesting because they they get the hero um i forget what his name is uh old german guy um to like take care of the vampires and he's catholic yeah van helsing yeah dr van helsing van he's helsing. catholic and one of the things he'll do to stop a vampire from going through a door is to take the eucharist and to kind of crush it up and put it in a putty and then he makes like a barrier around the door with his putty, which is something no Catholic would ever do. That's so it's kind of religious. <laughs> it is. So he has only like a it's he's like has a Catholic magic idea of the church. Yeah. He feels like the Catholic Church can only is the only one who can handle vampires, but that's because yeah. we have the most magic yeah. out of all the out of all the Christian groups. So yeah. it's tough Act- to actually do real theology. Yeah. It might be sacrilegious, but you've that just actually given me some new ideas for things here. So <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I've got a bad draft coming through one of my doors. So, you know, so is this some... what you do when you have like a lot of when there's a lot of bad things going on at parish? Do you just do this around your parish, maybe? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you could also know. just do like regular holy water or exercise salt. I think that would probably do the trick. Yeah. My my wife Carrie is a big fan of blessed salt. Yes. Yeah, so, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So yeah, so we we have Larry Chat back on just to have a nice little chat. He's been wanting to come back on for a while. We can finally make it happen. And I've been begging. 
begging yes begging it's been been embarrassing it's been embarrassing uh life's been crazy on my end literally crazy like literally crazy but you know this too shall pass um so we're happy to have him on it's good because it means i can shut up more um which is hard to do sometimes but um no it'll be good it's gonna be good um I had something to say there, and I just totally forgot. But yeah, oh yeah. So Larry, what have you been up to lately? Like, uh, you, you're still making the rounds on the podcast. You still got the blog going. Yes, I'm, I'm still blogging regularly. I'm doing a lot of podcasts. I've just upgraded my microphone and stuff. I'm going to start uh, making some videos of my own. I'm awesome. contracting. I'm finally contracting with some guy who you know, like, is like a webmaster who's going to run my whole page for me and upgrade the platform because I'm a complete Luddite technologically and, and anything that requires more than one or two steps, I say to heck with it and I'm done. Uh, so yeah, blogging, podcasting, um, but also, you know, I'm working on two books, one for Word on Fire on the Universal Cult of Holiness and one for Ignatius Press on what it's called the Credo of a Catholic Worker, our moment of Christian witness. Uh, and so I don't advise working on two books at the same time and trying to blog and podcast podcast and all that so i'm um i'm i'm busy uh but i still find time for and, my and, nightly bourbon and, so and, and running a, a farm at the same time oh and running our farm although it's kind of downtime now yeah that's true yeah no i uh, was at one point writing three books at once and doing my doctorate and running a parish yeah I don't, and it's yeah. crazy it is crazy no i'm not i have one little book i got a little bit left to finish on my vatican two book and then it's uh it's um no more book writing until PhD is done. You know, at one point in time, I was listening to an audio book about aliens as well as uh, playing several different video game campaigns at the same time. Tough, and whoo boy, that, that was tough. exhausting to that get all that tough. stuff that done. So I, I understand where you guys are at. Uh, <laughs> I, I empathize deeply. <laughs> Well, you'll happen to be happy to know that I I do have an interest in ETs and the whole UAP thing. So, uh, a good friend of mine is really latched into that. Uh, t- you know, really zoned into it professionally. So, UAP uh, thing? What's what's UAP you, thing? I don't know. Unidentified aerial phenomena. Get with the lingo, oh, man. That's new the lingo. new thing. UFO is so nineteen sixties. Like yeah, OCIA? I mean the, the the Pentagon refers to them as UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena. That's that's the new lingo. Interesting, interesting. Huh, interesting, cool. So um, I have nothing to say about that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm just responding to Father yeah. Anthony, bringing up the yeah. book well, on... Yeah, because part of me wants to totally sidetrack this thing. I don't, think, I don't think aliens exist. I'm totally anti-alien. I, I, uh, wait, wait, wait. Do you mean they're not, aliens don't exist in the sense that they're not visiting here, or they just don't exist at all anywhere? Both. So I, I make an allowance for space fish. Space dogs, maybe even space cats, but no space people. I just don't think... No rational creatures. No rational creatures outside the ones that we know of. Have you ever read the book Rare Earth? I have uh, not. It's written by a scientist, a cosmologist, who, who sort of makes that claim. He says, if there is other intelligent life out there, it must be very, very, very rare. Uh, and then he gives a lot of reasons for thinking that. And that the, the mythology that's crept in now, that that intelligent life must be ubiquitous throughout the entire universe, is just that. It's just a mythology. Well, our radio telescopes hear nothing but silence. We see no mega structures out there in the cosmos that would indicate a species a billion years ahead of us have built Dyson spheres around suns and things like that. There just doesn't seem to be any strong evidence uh, that there's a lot of intelligent life out there. So I, I think actually it's a respectable position to hold that God has created an entire universe 
I mean, a salmon lays 10 billion eggs so that three can survive. So the, the, the divine profligacy with regard to the expanse of the universe means nothing in terms of our perhaps solitary nature. Yeah, that's where I'm at with that. Like, why is the universe so big? Because it, it's fun to have a giant universe. Like, that yeah, doesn't playground. mean anything. To, it's just a really big playground. It's just yeah. really, and also like, you know, this is going a little bit of nerdiness back to the Fermi paradox that if there are aliens, yeah, like I mentioned, where are they? We should have noticed them by now, given the time and space of that sort of thing. And also I think just creatively, it makes for a messier story. Like I think the story that we have now of creation, of redemption, it just works so well and is so perfect by itself. Having space people makes the story more into like a, a bad fan fiction in my opinion. So just on a literary cosmological scale, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not into it. I'm not into it. Now, people disagree with me on that part. Well, it could be that, that the incarnation of Christ is the regional iteration of a cosmic phenomenon. In other words, uh, if there are other intelligent beings out there, God may have incarnated himself within them as well. Um, so, I mean, I, that's a completely speculative on my right. part. I don't, it might even be abject, abject her heresy, might be abject heresy. Uh, but um, I don't see, but anyway, I, I would be open to the idea that there's millions of other intelligent beings out there. And I'm open to the idea that there are no others. I yeah. think that either way works into God's plan just fine. But I agree with you, the Christian narrative makes... It's a lot easier to negotiate if we are alone. And, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm happy to be proven wrong if I die and find out that there's uh, space saints in heaven. Cool. That's fine. I'm not mad about that. Uh, but I'm, I'm just right about this. So all you people who think aliens are real, you're wrong. I'm sorry. Mm. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, that's a great way to start the vampires, show. Vampires, vampires, aliens, ETs. <laughs> but you know what? You know, we didn't plan this in advance, but actually it is a question that interests me because we do live in a day and age where Catholics and other Christians are are very scientifically aware of, of you know, modern science and, and what it says. And, and that mythos is out there about aliens and thousands and millions of, of alien beings all over the cosmos. And I think in the minds of a lot of people, it does lead to a kind of religious relativism, perhaps a religious indifferentism that, you know, maybe Jesus is just one among trillions or something, you know, and, and, and it's so it's an issue, I think, that theologically is on people's minds, but nobody seems to take that question very seriously. And I also think it's uh, it's a distraction, a purposeful one, if not a conscious one, uh, that in order to avoid the big question of our existence, of the big decision whether or not to uh, accept Jesus Christ, you can distract yourself by going at seemingly big questions about either a multiverse or uh, yeah. aliens. I feel like it's pushing aside. It's a way to occupy our desire for something more and something beyond. But it's a distraction, I think, psychologically, which is another reason why I don't care for it. It's a distraction, yeah. but it's also, and, I, think it speaks to, I think it speaks to... It is like the cosmological shift we've gone through of this notion that there are billions of galaxies or whatever, right? Like, like you feel so yeah. infinitesimally small that in order to have significance, there has to be relation, which means there has to be something else to relate to within this framework. And so these things just naturally occur in that in that context. Um, and I, you're right. I, so I don't think we've dealt with that notion. Like we haven't dealt with the cosmological shift. No, we, we haven't, you know, and, you know, I've actually published, I mean, one of my, 
areas of expertise when I was still, a, you know, in the academic world was the interface between Catholicism and modern science. I wrote a book on it, on science and, and religion. And the, the fact is, you're right, there's the, the, the late great uh, Italian philosopher Augusto del Noce once uh, wrote in a great series of essays that the religion of the modern world is actually scientism, uh, the reduction of all true knowledge to what can be empirically verified, proven, or at least somewhat hinted at by the mystique of science. And of course, he laments this fact and says it, mm-hmm. it, it accounts for a great diminishment in our awareness of what a human person is, who God is, uh, what reality is all about, the meaning of existence, morality. It's, it has deleterious effects across the board. And yet scientism is our religion. And this is what I mean why it, it, you talk about that cosmic shift in our consciousness. It is there. Mm-hmm. And Millions of Catholics are, are affected by this question of how do we deal with the modern cosmology of, of science? And uh, it's, it's, it's a fascinating question, but, the, but there's just so much mythos out there. For example, the multiverse is there's it's almost unprovable yeah. by in theory. It's it's unprovable because it's unobservable. And yet there it is as as, as speculation um, that's. Completely. But that's a, an example of what Del Noce would say is scientism. All it takes is one scientist working with artificial intelligence computers to come up with a mathematical paradigm that says multiverses are mathematically possible. And then bang. Oh, well, multiverses are real. And, and, and it, also, yeah. it also then brings in, I think, it's a sign of something that Blondell is really big on of like the, the um, immanentism of the infinite. Right, that that modernity's yes. notion, the whole thing around modernity is that it immunitizes the infinite, that it brings the notion of infinity down, just just the the create the realm of the of the created world, and so this there's this like his, what's brilliant about him is that he's saying actually this is the place to start for apologetics, um, because this whole push now uh, is a sign of this innate notion that there is something more. But it's it's still expanding only on a horizontal level. It's not recognizing right. the the vertical the the like not even, like vertical is not even the right word almost right like the the transcending vertical motion that has to happen in man because yeah. of nothing in this universe can satisfy that infinite desire. Yeah, and and there's a short that is so true, and there's a short circuiting along the way of their of their logic and their path of reasoning. Because you will get some scientists, for example, who are very aware that say consciousness is a deep mystery, and it mm-hmm. cannot simply be reductively explained through brain chemistry. You know, your your brain doesn't excrete thoughts like your liver excretes bile. That's that's very obvious. So they have all these mystifications like quantum fluctuations in the brain. All this, it's it's just nothing but mystification but so but you will get some scientists who acknowledge okay we got to explain conscious so they they resort to this theory called panpsychism which is this notion that the universe as such is conscious throughout a kind of bersonian idea the elan vital and and this massive con- without ever though going the next step and asking the question well what are you talking about when you say consciousness is latent within the universe what is consciousness why is it latent in the universe why not take the next step to say that logos precedes you know logos precedes matter and that there is an infinite transcendence that is the consciousness that we're they they don't want to take that step because it smacks of religion and and uh, so you're right there is this blondelian thing going on here 
uh, you know, that we, yeah, that, you know, it is funny because we're saying like universal consciousness. I'm like, wow, that sounds like a fancy, that's a, that sounds like logos with extra steps. Like why? But also <laughs> I, I think it, part of the problem, I think what the multiverse theory is really all about is it's a counter to the very Catholic theory of the big bang. Uh, that uh, this idea yeah. that we have some pretty good evidence that there is a beginning of the universe that causes problems. Uh, it's much easier to have an atheistic outlook if the universe is uh, eternal, but if it has a beginning, yeah. that makes things tricky. And but and, if you, yeah. yeah. So if you have a multiverse, it's a way to make the universe and or the universe multiverses. Yeah. It's also a way of explaining the Goldilocks uh, reality of of yeah. our universe, the anthropic principle, as it's called by scientists, that our universe seems to be fine-tuned for the emergence of, of, of life and consciousness, and that all of these very narrow parameters had to pertain, and they didn't necessarily have to, and yet here we are in this universe perfectly designed for the emergence of us. And so the multiverse thing gets you off the hook by saying, well, there's 10 gazillion universes. We just <laughs> happen to be the one that got it right. Yeah. Uh, it, also it also then starts to remove notions of freedom because it's like well this is just your iteration that you're determined to in this universe but there's this other universe that exists where this iteration doesn't happen and 10 trillion of others of them the other thing that gets really interesting with this it's really just it's a return to paganism in a yes in oh, a neo christian is. sense right so paganism doesn't have the christian like it christianity brings in the whole the whole notion of the the true infinite is a christian notion because of the incarnation right and yes. so um, what becomes interesting about this is this is the infinite being ripped from the incarnation and so much of this, but it's bringing about almost these circular notions of time because the notion of beginning means that there has to be an end. This is something Pieper brings out in his end of time essay on sure. the notion of history, right? That that beginning and end to time in history is a Christian notion. It's a purely Christian notion. It is a purely Judeo-Christian notion. No, sorry, Judeo-Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that there is this, uh, you know, th what what you just described. And uh, the cyclic uh, sort of models uh, always tend to end up in a kind of regime of futility, yep. the, you know, and, and, and fatalism. But I would also say this. There, there's an even greater danger in, in, a, in a thoroughgoing immanentism with regard to the spirit, uh, and, and that is that it blesses everything. Yep. Uh, in other words, then the spirit is in a sense everything. If everything is a manifestation of the spirit, this immanent spirit, that that includes evil as well as good. And thus those categories become meaningless. And then all of a sudden, the basic elemental impulses of our human nature, even the very dark ones, undergo an apotheosis. They, under, they undergo an energizing. I mean, it's what the, the, you know, the, the Germans call the, the, the cult of Blut und Erde, the cult of blood and soil, that there is a spirit in die Deutsche Volk and, and in the Deutsche Soil, okay? And, and this springs out, and it really does lead to a return of the strong gods the strong gods of, of of ethnic hatreds national hatreds familial hatreds because all of these hatreds then become elemental expressions of the imminent just as much as what we would consider the higher virtues and it was precisely the christian overcoming of that yin and yang uh of of, of the imminentist philosophy or i should say the judeo-christian overcoming of that in monotheism that ratzinger points out quite clearly is this enormous breakthrough in human consciousness that changed everything. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
And so this, my point is that this repaganization of our existence is, is doubly dangerous and more dangerous than the ancient paganism exactly. for, for a lot of ways that we could. Because, it's, because it's, it's a paganism that is Christianity twisted. Yes. Yes. It's, it, that's it, the best it, way. I can't, I can't improve upon that. It's a <laughs> twisted Christianity, yeah. just like the Nazi twisted cross. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Amen. Oh, that's a good one. Like that's a really that. good image. <laughs> that's a very um, good image. You know, and, and you know, the thing is, like, I, I was talking about uh, science fiction. I genuinely very much enjoy reading science fiction. Uh, I like comic books. I like, you know, as far as like a fun way to make your characters interact in different stories. Multiverse. Okay, fine. I'm down with that as far as a, a, a yeah. messy storytelling device to get different versions of Superman to fight. Like, I want to read about communist Superman. That's a fun story to me. But you, you can see that it, even if you're not using those ideas in a pernicious sort of way, that I think they are doing some heavy lifting uh, for, for <laughs> I don't want to sound dramatic, but for evil. Uh, these uh, underlying yeah. philosophies yeah. that we kind of play with for funsies, um, do inform us um, and do Absolutely. inform the way that we think. And if we're not aware of them, then it can be dangerous. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Man, did not expect to go there. That was fun. Yeah, that was that a great cool. conversation. Cool. cool. All right. So so um, vampires and aliens. Thank you, Father Anthony. Uh, see? There yeah. we go. Uh, I, I got I got I got boring stuff. Uh, <laughs> Let's talk about the synod and lame stuff, Father Harrison. <laughs> you you said you want to talk about the synod. You said you want yeah. to talk about synodality because I think it's an important topic. Because I, I think, actually yeah because I, I want to talk about it, getting I mean, more and more parishioners asking me about this. Right. Like, what's the deal? What's going on? So I think it's a right. good thing to talk about. And like for me, I think it's important to have a good you know, also a good theological balance about it because it's not, it's not a, it's also not a horrible notion at the same time. It's like, it's got a, it synod, the notion of synod has, is an express, it has ecclesiological elements. Like it has a strong history in ecclesiology, right? A strong expression of how the church is, church governs her communion. So it's not like, it's not meant to be this, vague thing that acts that does a lot of work and says nothing um which sometimes i think these terms get thrown around for that so i think it's just important for people to understand like why let's talk about the synod on synodality because in one sense this isn't all bad but it can be used for evil it can be used for bad yeah because of no because of vagueness and stuff like this um what what is yeah. With Stegi. <laughs> okay. Well, well, first off, yeah, you know, in theory, okay, so oh, I, I would argue very strongly that over the past several hundred years, uh, a, a distorted pastoral authority has sort of crept into the church. This is the insight of Louis Bouillet in his book right. in 1982, The Church of God. He says the number one problem that Vatican II wanted to address was the distortion of pastoral authority in the Catholic Church. And what he meant by that was the hyper centralization of authority and power in Rome. In the the Pope. And that is no slight against the Pope. But what he's actually trying to do is to retrieve the papacy in its most proper Petrine ministerial form as, in a sense, uh, 
uh, the, the, in a sense, the facilitator of unity uh, in the service of unity, but not, uh, not this universal jurisdictional authority that controls absolutely everything. And so things like, does every single bishop has to be, have to be selected by Rome? Why can't bishops be, in a sense, more synodally elected in, in, in local Episcopal conferences and, and with lay people having a stronger voice in, in who the bishops are going to be? Why all these curial offices in the Vatican controlling absolutely everything that, that could be handled in a more diffused way, spread out throughout the broader church? Because after all, the church does believe in subsidiarity, even for herself, the notion that decisions are best made at the local level if they can be made at that level. And decisions should only be made at a higher level if it's something a local level cannot do. But what we've had in the past couple hundred years in the Catholic Church is this creeping centralization of everything in Rome, and it has had a distorting effect on the church, where then the bishops simply become sort of vassals of the papacy, and, and then... pre ironic in so many ways. Well, yeah. It's, not, it's like completely contrary. And here, and priests become vassals of their bishops, which mm-hmm. we, we could talk about if, okay. if, if, if you felt so inclined. Um, <laughs> Very respectful... And cooperative vassals who support their local ordinary in every way. Absolutely. That's the position of our podcast. That's right. <laughs> yes. And uh, you can disavow the comments of your guest at any time. But so, but, okay, so that's in theory. Why, well, so what we're trying to get at here now, especially if we want to have better ecumenical relations with the Eastern churches who have long had a serious beef about the, the Roman claims to centralized power. Uh, and, and, and of course, they have their own issues then with disintegration and disunity, but that's a different debate for a different day. But they do prefer a more synodal structure in, in their ecclesiology. And so making the Catholic Church less centralized in Rome and more synodal has broad ecumenical implications with regard to the Eastern Orthodox. I think it would be a most welcome development uh, from, from their point of view. And so for all of those reasons, it would be a good idea for Rome to have less centralization. However, the problem is, is that synodality only works in a church that that takes things like holiness seriously. Um, otherwise, it devolves, in my opinion, into um, I, I can't say this, but it, it, a urinating contest. Uh, <laughs> let's put it that way. Uh, you know, between rival powers. In other words, we just move power from Rome conceived of as power in a worldly sense, and we just move it out into these Episcopal conferences. I mean, there was a heresy in the church a few centuries back called Gallicanism, where essentially the French were saying, we don't need no stinking pope, you know, and and we'll have the pope as a figurehead, but we'll make all of our own decisions, French decisions for the French, and that, that is that. We'll pick our own bishops and you Take a hike, Rome. Uh, and if we want to change a few doctrines along the way, uh, so, you know, and that's what the Germans are doing now, you know, like, hey, we want some German Gallicanism here. So, um, pardon all my the, bad the accents. The Germans want to become French after all. 
Yeah, after all, you know, the, the, the French win, after all, you know, the, the, German, the, the Germans are becoming Gallic. We're, we're offending people in the weirdest way on this podcast. I'm for it. I'm all yeah, for it. Absolutely. Germans, French, French, you know, German. bad accents, bad German vampires, and French accents, vampires, aliens. They're all very bad. To heck with them all. Uh, but you get my point that yeah. my fear is that absent a strong pope at the helm, and I don't think we have a strong pope at the helm, uh, I'll just say that flat out. I'm not. Not an opponent of Pope Francis. I'm not a fan of Pope Francis. I just think he's a very average pope, and I don't think he's a strong hand. And I fear that in simply talking about synodality and all these liberal buzzwords that get tossed around, what people are simply hearing is, "Oh, goody! Uh, now the the, you know, the Germans can ordain women, and the French can ordain gays, and 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 so on and so forth, uh, and and the Americans can do whatever it is the Americans want to do, uh, you know." Um, great question what do they want to do uh, uh, well they want to bless capitalism that's what they yes, want to do amen you know the americans want money uh <laughs> and, wait, wait, wait. And, can, I, can i pause for a second because there's a few things that i've noticed going on in a in anecdotal way but on the ground as far as my perspective um that uh a few things um one i have seen very much so uh not a desire for power but a fear of power in the church that's um, interesting, yeah. Yeah, so in this way, when all the uh, COVID stuff first started happening, um, we would have these big, you know, Zoom meetings of all the priests, and there'd be many pastors who would be begging the bishop to make decisions for them. There was a fear of their own power of making a decision, and some of the questions would be, like, ridiculous. Like, can you please, like, bishop, can you please say that these are, and, and to his credit, a lot of times the bishop refused to do that. It's like, no, you know, you know your parish, you know what needs to happen, you're the pastor, you need to make these decisions. But there's a fear of that. I think there's sometimes a fear of that in the uh, episcopacy as well. Why uh, there's sometimes a desire to hide behind the USCCB instead of standing up in your own authority and your own power as a bishop. There's a fear of consequences that comes with the use of power. So I see I see some of that going on. Don't you think a lot of that has to do with the attempt to deflect blame? Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, for decisions yeah. that you know are probably going to be deeply uncomfortable and unpopular for a lot of people. So you say, hey, don't look at me. It's the bishop's decision. Or a bishop, hey, don't, hey, don't look at me. It's the USCCB or the US. Hey, don't look that's at me. It's the, it's the yeah. Pope. So everything gets, gets kicked up the and, line. And, and that's a very human tendency. I remember when I was an associate, I never wanted to stop being an associate because it was great i don't like this father oh go talk to the pastor you know because i really i can't do anything about it this isn't my i am just i'm not this, i'm here to help out so, so you have but, so but, but, this but, is an interesting thing, no, but, but here's the thing though is is at the same time we also what's the notion of power at play here right right, like, right. where's the christian notion of power at play here which is vastly different and very <laughs> countercultural that hasn't still played out i think in our ecclesiology yeah, so uh, I think you see two two mistaken notions of of power, and uh, we're going to eventually talk about uh, on another episode ordination of uh, the idea of ordination of women uh, priests, which I think is another just form of clericalism or this mistaken idea of power um, that there are people who, on one hand, uh, don't want power because they kind of realize maybe on a selfish level that power means responsibility, it means sacrifice. Power means the cross for for a Catholic. It just does. Um, um, but the other hand, you will find people, bishops, other ecclesiastics, um, you know, even even lay speakers who have an audience, it can gain a kind of power and use that for their own personal ends. 
So once again, ignoring the responsibility of power on the other way. So I see those two things going on. But uh, also, I see excitement over the synod based on woundedness in the church. Where, like, I've talked to people, my diocese priests and lay people, um, who, like, we are in Pittsburgh, and I think this goes for a lot of Catholics in different dioceses as well, we are beaten up. We've been beaten up by COVID. We've been beaten up by going from 200 parishes, well, really, you know, in the 90s, 300 parishes, so we're going down to 60, um, the lack right, of priests. Right, um, right. And, and structures of abuse, not all, like, sexual abuse, but structures of abuse in the church um, throughout seminary and throughout all these things, these things that get passed down in so many ways. And people get worn down and beat up so much, and they see the problem as the actual theological structure of the church, that's the problem, and that's what needs to change. And maybe synodality will change the church so that we stop getting beat up so much. It's a misplaced notion that uh, they think the problem is in how the church is meant to be, instead of the problem is in the sinfulness of human actors. So these are two things that I've, I've seen as far as excitement uh, or fear about the synod. I think that's all very profoundly insightful because when I when I use the word power, you know, when you write a blog, you can't really you got to keep it short. Uh, and it, so when I use the word power, when I was criticizing the church using Bouyer, what what I'm talking about is is the kind of power that emulates worldly power, the kind of power that is divo- that is divorced from service, divor- divorced from the cross, divorced from charity. And that kind of power always, at the end of the day, ends up being kind of coercive because it, there's, there's nothing left but coercion. But even more important than that, when I when I talk, well, let's, if I s- said the church in the fifth century started to emulate the power of the empire, that would be true. So when I say that the modern church emulates the power of the world, how, how do modern, say, liberal democracies exercise power? They do it through the managerial bureaucratic state. They do it through a series of entrenched, anonymous bureaucrats, what people call the deep state or whatever they want to call it. But yeah, these, these unelected bureaucrats that manage, micromanage everything. And now that we have the surveillance state and surveillance capitalism and the national security state, it just gets worse and worse and worse. But it is this bureaucratization of things that I most fear with regard to synodality, that you're just going to get an endless blizzard of BS from various Episcopal conferences where they're going to churn out new documents and subcommittees of subcommittees and this committee and an ad hoc committee and this study and that study. And then they make a CD about it all and it ends up in the bishop's closet and and doesn't move any needles. But if you mean by synodality what you just described, trying to address the fact that this is a deeply, deeply wounded church in the West, that people are existentially scarred in in not just by the church but by what's going on in our crazy world right now and they are crying out for bread and they don't want to be given stones and and if, if synodality means the church attempting to reach down into the grassroots and to truly engage the laity and her priests in this church down in the trenches and, and allow their concerns to trickle up then synodality is not only a good thing it might be the greatest thing the church has seen in centuries in centuries but and and i think pope francis has good instincts in this regard 
hard. Mm-hmm. He, he, he talks a lot about the poor and the, the margin. I just don't think he always is consistent in how he approaches that. And he also, he also seems to hide behind bureaucracy when it suits him. Anyway. Yeah. The thing is, like, everything you said, like, if that were to actually happen, it would be amazing. But I think there's a tendency then to the people who are wounded because they are wounded we need to accept whatever they want Mm -hmm. Um, when i am in a dark place when i am wounded there's something wrong with me Uh, it may not even be my fault i may just be a pure victim but that does not mean every decision or every solution that i see coming out of my woundedness will actually help me and that's right so then you have people who want to use my woundedness um, in order to uh, advance their own agenda. So if I think, if I am just totally just destroyed by the sexual abuse crisis, and I mean, what honest Catholic hasn't been on some deep level, um, and I think that what will fix this is ordained women priests. Okay, that's just what I, what I think. Um, you'll find people in power who will then use my woundedness to advance a thing that will not actually help it at all. And that's right. what I get very worried about in the Synod. No, I agree that there are people, are, people are going to have a variety of theological hobby horses that they're going to ride into that discussion and a lot of hidden agendas. And they view it as an opportunity to simply take advantage of the wounded church in order to advance agendas that are only going to make the woundedness worse because is, they're, they're deflections. They're not also re- incredibly demonic. <laughs> well, yeah, yes, I mean, yeah. yes, <laughs> yes, it is demonic. In fact, I mean, Satan is the father of lies, but he's also for that reason, the father of divisions mm-hmm. and and uh, and of impure motives. And uh, and uh, yeah, whenever the church succumbs to these kinds of machinations, it's it's a horrible think, thing. You know, and it's interesting because I think in all this, too, I think like it, how how this all plays out and how you how one does things is i think you guys are right about the existential crisis i think we all feel that every day um yes and and even people who don't i think a lot of people who are doing various things in the church are acting out of that without realizing that's what they're experiencing um but it is interesting because at the same time it's like when it comes like so they're bringing like that question around power again like you you mentioned like coercive power right there is times and places where even because because the church stands in the world oh, it has to have some it has to have some sometimes you say this yeah. is the, this is the way it is in the end oh, yeah we can do or whatever right but people people then take that as clericalism when it's actually you're saying no i'm actually doing this out of service and i think it, it's it's but like at the same time a good priest or a good bishop will always listen yeah, I mean, it's always got to be reciprocal. I mean, it would be wrong to accuse a parent of parentism if right. they if they refuse to let their 14-year-old daughter go on a cruise with a 50-year-old man who she met on the Internet. All right, then that's parentism. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, a parent should still listen to their child and right. would want to know, why is it you choose to go on a cruise with a 50-year-old right. man? What's going on with you, darling, uh, that, that this is happening in your little life? Uh, and and so there have to be those those open chains of commun of, of communication, 
You know, but this is my fear with regard to the synodal process in the church, that it's just simply going to be co-opted and used. And and there's I'll let you I just want to say one thing not that it's on my mind. I think this helps go a long way towards explaining to the the, the very recent phenomena, really, of the explosion of the of the rad trad movement, the radical traditionalist movement. What these are, so many of them are just formerly conservative Catholics, JP2 Catholics, who have in a sense been red pilled by by the past 10 years or so in the church, uh, sex abuse crisis, uh, the apparent wishy washiness of Pope Francis whether that's right or wrong I'm not going to comment you know and so now they've just gone down this rabbit hole of, of some sort what, what I call ecclesial comfort food of you know of the Tridentine liturgy and most people going to hell and Thomas Aquinas there fixed yeah. it fixed it Vatican II is awful and all that kind of stuff and so I think that's an ex- a lot millions of Catholics are simply walking away millions of Catholics are simply sitting in church board and wondering what's going on here and then millions of catholics are going the rad trad route and and and, and somebody has to really put and, humpty and dumpty to, back together and we need to realize that even the rad trads are on the peripheries yes they are they're on yeah. the same existential peripheries as so many other people mm-hmm. and in fact because here's the here's the secret right Ooh. now everyone's on a periphery <laughs> That's right. We're all on the peripheries. And this is my big problem with the Pope's motu proprio, traditionis custodes. I mean, here's the guy, the Pope of dialogue and accompaniment and, and all that, and going out to the peripheries and the margins. But when it came to these very deeply wounded and hurting Catholics who are simply looking for, you know, they're, they're out there drowning in our culture, and they're looking for the church to send them a lifeboat, and the church sends them an anchor instead. And, you know, here— Catch this anchor, okay? And and the, 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 no, <laughs> you want your tradition. You have Eucharistic prayer one, a prayer that's never prayed at most parishes. In that's America. right. That's right. There you go. Every there you weekend. Go. Every weekend. <laughs> no, no, no. We, 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 yeah, yeah. Of course. But that, yeah. yeah, you said America though, so. Yeah, you're, yeah. In Canada, they all do Eucharistic prayer one. I'm sure, Harrison. <laughs> hey, look, I, I I attend an Anglican ordinary at liturgy and the mass is an hour and a half long and it's always canon number one always that's all they got yeah although i say this that's for sundays weekday masses they they'll use eucharistic prayer number two from the novus ordo interesting that's what i'll do i I, the one prayer i almost never pray is three it's it's two on the weekdays and it's it's uh one on sundays yeah i mean what's the point to three it's too long it's too long for a weekday and too short for sunday so you know it's a minute longer than two i find so uh, much longer oh my goodness but you know interesting story interesting story about eucharistic prayer number two since we were talking about louis bouillet louis bouillet was on the liturgical commission Mm -hmm. after vatican ii Mm -hmm. to reform the liturgy and of course there were all kinds of (laughs) hijinks that were going on by bunini and others to sort of force through the novus ordo and paul the sixth was not paying much attention blah blah but anyway louis bouillet got word that in three hours they were having a meeting and Eucharistic prayer number two had to be submitted at this meeting and it was the first Bouillet had heard of it so he actually went with a, a colleague to a, a restaurant in a piazza somewhere in Rome and sat down and wrote Eucharistic number two in in about an hour and a half I I I, I, I 
memory says like on a, on a napkin or something, but that's not true. I think I think he had a, a notepad or something. But you get the point. I mean, it, it's 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 no wonder sometimes that the rad trads point at stuff like that and they yeah. say, "What is going on?" And it, you know, I would say, well, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not involved in Louis Bouillet's uh, pasta amatriciana as he's doing <laughs> the anaphora and, of Hippolytus in Eucharistic prayer too. But and you also yeah. like the, uh, people need to realize like Bouillet, if it wasn't for Bouillet. Things may not be what things may have been worse. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think yeah. like yeah, it's they interesting may have been worse. little things I, I hear about with regards to Bouye. And like I remember hearing actually at one point, this, this is, I don't know how true it is. It may be apocryphal, but the famous story around Bouye that I've heard is um, he got so frustrated at one point, he actually handed in his letter of resignation to the Pope. Pope calls him into the office and Pope says, why are you resigning? You are our chief liturgical expert. You are the man. And he says, Holy Father, everything I recommend to Monsignor Bonini, or everything I recommend, you seem to not do. He goes, I don't get it. Monsignor Bonini, whatever he brings me, he says that you've wanted it. You, but, and then Bui is like, no, yeah. you've been doing the opposite. And and so if we find out that Bonini's just been playing hard and fast with everyone that is not apocryphal this has now okay. been documented in various in various uh, books on the history of the liturgical reform uh, it's it's been noted but i have several okay. radical traditionalist friends who you know have pointed this out to me you yeah, know yeah. that you now of course then it gets tied up in conspiracy theories bunini was a freemason and so the novus ordo is the result of a freemason plot no. and taylor marshall's infiltration and yeah. and all of that oh, and that's a rabbit hole i'm not going to go down i would just i would just subscribe yeah. to the fact that bunini was a liar and a fraud and he manipulated the system to get the novus ordo through because he wanted it yeah. okay but like so, the the reason why even though those things are bad, evil. And the one thing that we're kind of missing in this, um, n not missing, I, I, I would assume we just haven't gotten to it yet, um, with is, so a thing, and then like maybe a deeper question is, how does the Holy Spirit actually work in these super broken systems? Like one of the reasons why I'm totally okay with praying Eucharistic prayer too, even though I've heard all of those stories, is because... I trust that the Holy Spirit has allowed it, and it's fine. Um, and it's not necessarily the, you know, it's it's not the canon, uh, mm -hmm. but there's nothing wrong with it uh, if you just look at no. it as it is, right? It's got um, all the right stuff there. It's got all the right stuff. It's fine, okay? Yeah. Um, but, like, is there hope for the Holy Spirit to work in the synodal process? Uh, and I, I'll be honest, I'm incredibly cynical. Uh I think that the Holy Spirit will allow a bunch of terrible stuff to happen um, because it's what we deserve. That's kind of how I see the Holy Spirit working. In I don't know if that's good or not. I don't know if that's true or not. Well, you know, the, the guidance of the church is a negative charism. All it means is the church isn't going to make some grandiose, gross error in some central matter of the faith. Otherwise, uh, all bets are off. I mean, for example, to go back to the Novus Ordo, yeah, Bunini did all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it was Pope Paul VI who promulgated the liturgy. It was Pope Paul VI who looked at it and said, okay, fine, let's do it. And, and so you have to see something there with regard to the synodal process i'm skeptical too i mean the holy spirit like like blood through coronary arteries can can get clogged with clots and those clots are our sins and we can block the movement of the holy spirit and the church frequently does but anyway father harrison i think you wanted to say something well i was going to say i think what and it kind of ties into a lot of this too is the whole the way the liturgy 
got reformed though was because of hypercentralization. Yes. Because which started 500 years ago as a counter-Protestant pushback to unify the church because before the the 16th century there were dozens of liturgies of the Roman rite. There were. Uh, right? And they all existed for their own because like, I think this is always I think this has actually been part of the issue around the question for example of acculturation the Roman right exists throughout worlds that are neither Rome are just not Roman like sorry South America is not Roman um, um, it's true Africa I mean, Asia is not Roman yeah I mean we're kind yeah. of we're, we're, we're English hey, look, best, yeah. you know, Puritan, uh, you know I, whatever I, but it's like and so the the, the process Everything around, like even all of this, has happened because Rome has insisted we are the only ones who can promulgate liturgy. Um, we are the only like it's it's still acting out of this kind of central, and, and it's also very bureaucratic. It's and this so, is exactly my point, which I mean, is, is also going to be a problem with the synod because I'm like, man, this thing sounds so bureaucratic. Which, yeah. And the problem with bureaucracy when it gets excessive is it says a lot and does nothing. And it's no slam against the traditional Latin mass, which yeah. is beautiful in its, you know, in its own way. Uh, but the fact that for centuries, millennia, the church's official liturgy prayed in a language that the people did not understand, I think speaks to that centralization and that desire. T- I mean, th- they wanted unity, but they, in order to have unity, they imposed uniformity. So yeah. we're going to have the exact same liturgy. Absolutely. Every- These people speak Swahili. We're going to pray in Latin. These people speak Mandarin Chinese. We're going to pray in Latin. Francis Xavier could have probably had a lot more converts. They've been allowed not to, you know, do the mass in Latin. Uh, and and yet there we had it in Latin. And now the rad trads are running around saying it's a travesty that we have this vernacular liturgy. I think it's it's a movement of the Holy Spirit. Well, well overdue uh, to. And, and so in other words, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Mass in the vernacular and the reform of the liturgy was part of this decentralization process, uh, a true act of synodality to spread out, in a sense, liturgical celebration and, and give it a little more plasticity into how people. People can tailor the liturgy to their own cultural situations. It's not even it's not even like the the pagans that, in a sense, we sinned against in destroying their languages and liturgy. Even our own Catholics, when the Jesuits found out about the Maronites, they're like, what is this? We're going to burn all your books. And now this is what you're doing now. Like it's 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 there is a bad history of that in the West. Yeah, and there were, but and there were other rites. I mean, like I said, I, I attended Anglican Ordinariate Parish, and so I'm a little bit interested in that history. And if you go back to pre pre Reformation English Catholicism, uh, there was a liturgy called the Sarum Liturgy, uh, which was a sort of variation on the Roman Latin liturgy, but it, it was very very English, and mm-hmm. in, in its iteration, and it was a gorgeous liturgy, and eventually got translated into English. Uh, it fell by the wayside after Henry VIII and so on. But that's an example. And of course, there's always been the Ambrosian, uh, the Ambrosian liturgy and various Eastern Rite liturgies. So this notion, we had to have a uniform liturgy. I also heard arguments as, you know, against vernacular saying, you know, lots of religions have sacred languages. Muslims have Arabic. Uh, Jews have Hebrew. Hindus have Sanskrit and so on. Yeah, look at that, though. That's because those were the languages of their scriptures. Mm-hmm. So if the church is going to have a sacred language, maybe it should be Greek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we do have the Kyrie, so yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's like why a, is it know, Latin? <laughs> why is it Latin and not Greek yeah. then? If you want yeah, to talk about again, a sacred like, language, it's, it's why. Like, that's why I've always liked Ratzinger's thing around why he he's always said that we should have some Latin. 
like well, sure. in the sense, yeah. of, in sense of we are Roman people, that's fine. And also it shows you again, like we're, we're the church is always going to be in the mess of history and all this. But it's like, yeah, the, like you know, maybe some of the, the 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 things that are normal to the mass each and every week that don't change, that can be a proper place for Latin where you can learn what it means and it, it expresses. And he also he calls it kind of the iconostasis of the West, right, where it becomes this this mysterious experience yeah, where, sure. which is which is actually very important to liturgy but it's yeah, but it's yeah. like that these historically pure all latin liturgy is a, is an anomaly rather than the norm yeah. yeah and let's face it it had become a spectator sport yeah uh well, i mean i don't say that with sacrilege in mind there were no. a lot of devout people but you you were a spectator and the then thing, so you have, you have it with online masses with older parishioners who'll say, well, oh, I, I just watch mass at home now. I don't watch it when I'm at the church because that's their, that was what they were raised. It's not, I'm not, it's not a bad, like, it's just it's yeah. how they were raised in all this. It, it is something to observe. It's not something you're immersed in. Okay, but that's not even true to the people who grew up with Latin mass. That's true to Gen Xers as well, yes, who have no deeper connection to the mass. Um, so I think it's more prevalent because I think at least the boomer generation, they still have an inbred understanding that mass is a thing that happens on Sundays. Uh, but at the same time, it's the great tragedy of the reforms that it remained a spectator sport for so many people. I think this in our digital age, this is an increasing problem. Presenting from the discussions of the Latin mass, which I may have caricatured improperly. I don't sure. know. My rad trad friends will now rip me. But uh, the, the fact is, in, in our did you raise a good point. Um, I wrote a blog called the, the Bourgeois Church and, uh, and Spectator Catholicism, in which I, I point out this increasing phenomenon of a sense, and it, it's across the board in everything about our lives, this great, this increasing sense of our detachment from reality. Reality is something we view through a filter now. Re- reality is something we watch. And spe- there's a great movie from decades ago called Being There with Peter Sellers in it, and he plays this gardener, Char- Chauncey Gardner, who, uh, who, who was very stupid but was thought to be profound and his favorite phrase was I like to watch and because he liked to watch TV and he simply emulated everything he saw on TV and and we have uh, Marshall McLuhan of course Catholic became famous for the the medium is the message and our medium is the digitized thing that we're actually talking through right now and it, it has it is changing our consciousness it's not just our attention spans it's changing the very substance of how we view reality and so now when we attend mass i see and i'm not preaching at others i see this in myself i attend mass and i find myself instinctively detached looking at it as if uh, you know this is something i'm watching on my ipad or something yeah you know and i have to catch myself and say hey idiot pray you're here to pray <laughs> fool right. you know um so anyway what one little comment and then i got a question about that because i think one i think i've been saying this to some friends lately we desperately need to theologically engage with the notion of the digital age the internet right all this stuff oh, yes. because i get so frustrated when people say the internet's not real life i'm like actually it is because it's part of reality and therefore yeah. like there's a sub there's a there's a metaphysics to the internet that we have not engaged with sufficiently and, and theologically to ask, ask these questions about what what can be communicated over this because something is communicated um 
but how is it different than like we we need to be engaging with this theologically and we're not and and, and yeah. until we do we're going to treat it as if it like because you hear it all the time like a lot of bishops unfortunately i think don't see the reality of this and it's why the blog sphere can become such a in, like you know the taylor marshalls and stuff become so influential is because we actually don't take it seriously we don't realize this is the place we, people go to day in and day out because we haven't taken it theologically seriously we haven't taken the, i like what you said the, the metaphysics of the internet seriously as to how it's radically altered our, the very substance of our consciousness and how we view reality for example you know how deep a sea change in people's awareness of their reality was there when we went from sundials to clocks uh now our lives became slaves to the clock slaves to this minute you know i had a professor that once made fun of this by the by so what time should i meet with you at 1203 all right and uh, <laughs> and that was his way of spoofing the fact that you know we we are slaves to this to this thing called the clock now and and our whole economy gets routed around this thing called the clock and now we've moved from an analog universe to a digital one and I think the verdict is still out as to how what what is that doing to our consciousness? I mean, yeah. I grew up in an era of rotary telephones and a portable phone was one with a long cord. It three stations on the TV, you know, no cell phones or anything. And and so yeah, I'm 63 years old and I've lived through these changes and yet I now am equally influenced by this as a 10-year-old. And so I'm wondering you know, at least I grew up in in the pre-digital age. What is happening with young people today that this is the only reality that they have ever known? Mm-hmm. Oh, I can tell you a little bit, uh, at least some of the effects of it. Just a few weeks ago, uh, I was helping out on this uh, big uh, retreat I mentioned on the podcast. Um, uh, big youth retreat. It's been going on for 20 years for high schoolers. And the one thing that uh, we noticed on that, but also youth ministers I worked with, is that literally kids do not know how to hang out anymore mm-hmm. now it's i'm painting with broad strokes there are people who do have close yeah. friends and sure 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 but like literally not knowing what to do part of the ministry at my last parish that i was working on with uh, my youth minister and god bless him he was doing most of the work was like oh we've got to teach these kids before we get to jesus how to talk to each other because um, it really is that bad uh in so many ways um it's not yeah. that they I mean they have interactions at school and stuff but it has it has, has had a deep effect like for two days when we've told you not to use your phones and God bless them, they really didn't. Um, one of the major complaints was like, we don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, and so right. one That's of the most exactly formative right. experiences was when someone grabbed a Frisbee and we all just started getting in a big circle and throwing the Frisbee around. Like that was one of the more formative experiences. Um, Maybe yeah. right below adoration, two hours of adoration yeah. was the frisbee throwing, yeah. right? Because this, and, this really does, and yeah, we well, don't no, appreciate like I, it. And I, I just noticed it even myself often yeah. now. Like, and I, yeah. and I, and I'm someone who has very few apps on my phone, but the amount I text with people, I realize it's so much easier for me to have text. I find it much easier to have a text, and I'm, in, I like to talk. I find yeah. it easier to have a text conversation with people sometimes than it is to have an in real life conversation because the phone has changed how I interact with that. And that disturbs me. And that it does actually, because I'm, I'm of the age where I'm on that verge where I had, I remember life without a computer and I remember life with a computer. I mean, now I've lived life more with than without, but um, in all of that, you, you start to realize like, so it makes you conscious of this where for them, they may not, they don't know anything else. Yeah. So they don't know to know this, that this is, de- and the dangerous thing becomes as we, as like I get older and stuff where people haven't experienced this and it gets lost in the cultural memory People won't know how to judge that 
And but they do know something's wrong. That's the one fact. Yeah, they do. They do. I mean, like in all technologies, there's a benefit to it, and then there's a huge downside. I mean, like with regard to text messaging, I mean, it's great. Like I'm at the grocery store, and, you know, a simple thing from my wife instead of a phone call, hey, don't forget the rat poison and your hemorrhoid medicine. Okay, great. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and don't and, mix and, them up either. You have healthy rats in a very sick Larry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that's fictional, by the way. But uh, uh, so it, it's, it's good for that. All right. But what I object to then i hate having long conversations with people via text message and i will say to them eventually after like 30 things i I said could we could call me and then okay i'll see you later (laughs) bye (laughs) and you know what 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 worries me is this is that i don't mind the drive-by text here and there to just inform like we were doing earlier setting up this show but when it is a substitute for real conversation what it says to me is i really kind of want to chat with you but i don't really want to chat with you so much that i really want to talk to you or my generation it's i don't want to be a burden to you because i know you're probably busier or whatever it's both i just want to get this i want to get this out there and if it becomes something substantial then maybe we can have a real life conversation that's interesting yeah so i never thought of it that way no that's part of it uh there is this feeling in in millennial generation i think uh it's that you are a constant burden it's why we say instead of saying I'm sorry, we say my bad, because I am taking on since I already know I'm a burden. and I don't want you to feel what I always feel as a burden. I'll take on more of that. It's my bad. So you yeah, don't have to feel bad. So it's part yeah. of that. But also, I do think underlying the um, I don't want to be a burden. I also because life is so existentially burdensome to me, I don't want to deal with you. As a, yeah, as a burden, because you are because other people are burdens. Hey. Uh, and if you're not used to carrying them, a five minute conversation where you have to deal with this other person, that's a burden. It's, it's yeah. you know, friendship is hard to sustain. It is. It's I know, you know we all know people in life who don't have a whole lot of friends or have friends for a while and they fall away. Friends for other. And it's not because they had a falling out. It's just that they failed to keep up with each other mm-hmm. because it's work. And the fact is, as Christians, we need to understand, of course, I'm a burden to you. Some, <laughs> some more than other. Like I'm a real burden to my wife. All right. And I'm, of course, I'm a burden to you and you're a burden to me. But it's a burden of love because i the reason why it's a burden is because i love you if i didn't love you then i wouldn't care when you slight me or whatever i would just get fungu and off with you and and then yeah take get your car out of my way Uh, you know and that sort of thing it's only deeply burdensome when you care about somebody and so i do wonder when it's somebody that i actually am close to a family member a deep friend and it's text 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 hey call me well i got stuff to do i'll see you later and and it's like, well, I, a part of it is just the habit of what we've gotten used to now. With sure, yeah. I don't, don't be, but that's the pop. That's the whole point. It's the pattern of what we've gotten used to, and what has it done to us? And we haven't asked those questions, right? We, right. And it's one of Ratzinger's big points in when he's reflecting on moral theology that we allow technology to advance faster than our moral moral reflection. And I think we need to ask questions around, like, how do how does this affect, how, like you said, consciousness, how I perceive the world, how does this affect my body? Because it does, right? Like, oh, how does geez, it affect yeah. me psychologically? How does it affect relationship? All those things. Because there have been, like, again, there have been benefits. This this conversation would not be happening without the benefit, right. without the internet right now. Our podcast would not be happening without the internet right now, right? So this is all good stuff. Uh, so it's yeah. not all bad either. And um, yeah, so we just need to we need to um, 
Oh yeah, I mean, I live I, theologically about this. I live thirteen hundred miles away from my home state of Nebraska, where my, all of my family still lives, mm-hmm. and you know things like FaceTime and and all that. Th- that's a blessing. That's an absolute blessing. Yeah. So okay, it's wrap up time, but just quickly, quickly, get bring back into the synodality stuff quickly. Sure. Do you have a, a a quick list, Larry, of what you think would need to happen for synodality to work well? To get the blood clots out. Yeah, we have to become a church of the poor. Okay. That's what, and by poor, I mean a church of the peripheries, a church of the marginalized, a church for even wealthy people that are hurting. That's what I mean by a church of the poor. It's got to be, uh, it, it sounds cliche, perhaps a bit vague, a bit abstract, but this is my Catholic worker, Dorothy Day, localist sort of coming out in me that a church that isn't holy isn't much of a church. Uh, and we hide behind the skirts of ex opere operato and the bureaucracy and sinless yet sinful you know and, and and the bottom line is the church lacks complete credibility when it is a church of no transparency hiding predators bureaucracy top-down management so a true synodality i don't care what form it takes episcopal conferences local synods on the diocesan level i don't care what form it takes because none of it will matter without the true reform of holiness that has to take place in the church. And and so in other words, I think true synod is going to require a kind of what Dorothy Day called a revolution of the heart. We need a new revivalism. We need a new outflowing of the spirit in the church. Uh, and we need to pray for that and do sacrifices for that. And all of our dioceses need to go bankrupt and we need to fire all of our lawyers to make that happen. Not a bad idea. And so just on the, along these same lines, the Vatican Bank is scandal after scandal after scandal. I have a solution. Get rid of the Vatican Bank. Why does the Vatican need its own bank? <laughs> you hear that, Ed? That's what you need to work on, Ed Condon. It's sovereign yeah. territory. Then get rid Come of on, it. Pillar. Take you can't reform the Vatican the Bank. You can't stop the money laundering, the child sex trafficking money that gets shot through the Vatican Bank. Fine. Close it down. Shut the cesspool down. Why can't we do that? Because oh, I think, the church has to be independent. Vatican City State's got to have its own bank and its own post office and its own pantalone guard. I think the worry becomes then the Pope is now susceptible to foreign pressure if he's not in, diplomatically independent. He's only susceptible in the sense, in as much as he's willing to be martyred. And make no mistake about exactly. I agree with that completely. And the Italian state tomorrow could revoke the Lateran Treaty in three seconds with a stroke of a pen and Mm -hmm. and goose step their way into Vatican City and take it all down. Oh, while smoking cigarettes and eating prosciutto. (laughs) Guess what is that? You know, absolutely. Or, or Or what might happen, for example, with regard to certain scandals and how the Vatican judicial system works, is the EU might up and decide to heck with the Vatican's judicial system, you have violated every, you know, the final court of appeal is the Pope. And what if the Pope is the problem? All right. You, 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 there's no appellate system. There's no checks and balances. The problem is, so, though, but here's the thing, though. In nation states, though, the prime minister or whatever is also like not touchable. Like there, there are certain places and times where these people, because of their position, they're untouchable. They're yeah. literally untouchable because of their position and because of their office. And so, I mean, because this actually starts, I mean, we will not go here right now, but this starts to open up a whole other can of worms around accountability, 
around and also i think about the encroachment of modernity on the church that we exist for the church to work in the world she needs to be able to function within civil structures because she has both feet in the kingdom of god and in the city and that's of man, all true right? but 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 the problem becomes of course i've been I, what i've been reflecting on lately is that the city of man is just creating so many things that it's suffocating the church's ability to breathe and yes. we are and we are not adapting to how we can stand in the city of man differently and that is a whole other thing so we'll have to have you back on so something exactly back. okay so this conversation has been <laughs> so much fun yeah so good. i enjoyed I think, that yeah yeah so i think Went larry we, we're gonna I did not expect which is great larry because we're gonna have to have you back on but uh we'll give you the last word plug anything you want to plug say anything you want to say go for it i would just encourage everybody to read my blog gaudiumitspez22.com and uh that's my final word and we also encourage that uh, all right. Hey, everybody, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, please remember to like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. It makes more people listen to our podcast, and that's good. At least we think it is, or else we wouldn't be doing it. Uh, please leave a review on iTunes. Tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies, too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. Uh, you can find me doing 5,000 funerals at my parish. You can find me keeping my head above water somehow. Uh, contact the podcast. We've totally like skipped the whole Twitter thing. Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. Check out our Patreon. Donate if you want to uh, support the uh, lay people who make this happen. Producer Nick and Producer Riley and their little baby, Producer Indiana. God bless. God bless. Oh, that's your line. Sorry. Peace. <laughs> <laughs>